to the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. We're a periodical covering the changes in money, which are getting faster and more confusing. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. Payments get faster and cheaper. Cash goes out of fashion and mobile payments take over. Some people are on the inside track, others risk being left behind. Money attracts the cleverest criminals who always seem to stay ahead of the game. Our podcast takes a big picture look at these trends. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and society with it. Each week we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Professor George Selgin. We've all got used to our monies being issued by states, from dollars to euros to pounds, yen, rubles, yuan. These are all government-issued monies. But Professor Selgin says that this is not necessarily the way things should be. He specialises in the study of private money, which in fact has been much more common in the past than we might imagine. According to Professor Selgin, a private money-based system is actually more stable and less prone to booms and busts than what we have at the moment. So let's hear why. George, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you please start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your background? Well, I'm an economist. I uh, have, uh, for the last five years or so, been uh, uh, working at the Cato Institute as the director of their Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. But I was before that an academic for 30 years, an academic economist. I taught at various places, but mostly at the University of Georgia. And uh, there I uh, pursued my interest in monetary economics, as I've done since at Cato. So it's primarily in the fields of monetary and banking economics that I've worked for most of my career, also some uh, monetary history. One of the areas I understand you specialize in is, as part of your uh, research in monetary history, is the the history of uh, and the role of non-state-issued um, currency or non-state-issued money. Why, and there's clearly been a resurgence of interest in this topic over the last uh, decade or two, why has there been a resurgence of interest in this subject? I suppose that that um, recently Bitcoin, of course, has given a great uh, boost to interest in the subject. Uh, other than that, I can't say. I'm not sure to what extent it's been a result of uh, the efforts of myself, but also Kevin Dowd and Larry White and uh, several other people to, to draw attention to the uh, role of private markets in shaping monetary arrangements in the past and and what they could do in the future i i think the interest in the austrian school of economics has a lot to do with it hayek uh, in his pamphlet denationalization of money really got the ball rolling i think that was published in 1976 and it was because of it that I myself became interested in in this topic. I suppose that uh, that same influence is responsible for a lot of the uh, others who've taken a, uh, a fancy to this topic. 
I was looking at a paper. You mentioned Kevin Dowd. I was looking at a paper um, he wrote um, in the late 1980s, and one of the the I think he was quoting Hayek uh, when saying that money is too important to be left to the state. What, what, what's the what's the, what's the um, you know what's the reasoning there? Why is why why should we not leave money issuance to the state? I think there are uh, two things that most need to be pointed out with regard to that quote. The first is simply that uh, we need to appreciate the extent to which monetary institutions, desirable uh, and uh, and beneficial monetary institutions, can develop without any involvement of the state and have done so in the past. We owe most of our good monetary innovations to to the private market. Of course, we owe some bad ones to the private market too, but we would probably on balance be a lot worse off if we hadn't taken advantage of private market institutions' contributions to to exchange. And uh, the other point is that when you look closely at the history of money, you find that it's more often than not been the case that when things have gone awry, They've done so uh, because of misguided interference with the development of these private monetary arrangements. Not always, of course, but quite often. And the problem that uh, I see and Kevin sees and, and Larry White is that too often people jump to the conclusion that when things go wrong, the solution is more government involvement in money. Whereas, in fact, it's often the case that the better solution is to roll back some of its involvement, particularly look to look for things it's done that have caused harm and make sure it stops doing that. So I, I suppose one of the central bankers' uh, responses to that, th- th- those arguments would be that they, you know, they, they fulfill the lender of last resort function. And if in a, in a financial crisis or a, or a market panic, they can step in and, and, and keep the monetary system working. Um, what would you say to that uh, criticism? Well, I'd, I'd point out, first of all, that uh, there's, there, isn't, there isn't any need for bailouts or le- last resort lending simply to rescue individual firms. I think most central bankers would agree with that. It's only when there's a so-called systemic risk where large chunks of the financial system are threatened and uh, may collapse without help that the case for intervention exists. But if you look at the historical record, you find that uh, cases of systemic crises are actually relatively rare. They're more rare in certain countries. And it's just a bad uh, accident that the U.S. is the leader or one of them in (laughs) financial instability with England coming up uh, perhaps a, a somewhat distant second, but still uh, it, England has a fairly bad record of financial crises. And it's from these two economies that most people have drawn their lessons. In in other places, and some particular examples I would emphasize are Canada, Scotland, but there have been others as well, you see long records of financial stability. So 
the question is, why do we have or why did we have systemic crises in some places and not in others? And it turns out that the structure of the banking system and the nature of the bank regulations has a lot to do with it. In fact, uh, the, uh, the crisis we've had in the United States, for example, almost all trace back to f- misguided government regulations. So we would have very few occasions if we had the right regulatory framework where there was need for a lender of last resort. That's one point. That's one point. Let me just make a couple other quick ones, if I may, Paul. Uh, There are contractual ways that banks can handle crises and runs if they're allowed to, and the laws of most countries have prevented them from having contracts that would uh, uh, stem runs that uh, that could otherwise cause uh, uh, problems with a sound, otherwise sound banking system. So there, that's another part of the argument. What about the role, uh, George, of the uh, central bank or the or the government in maintaining aggregate levels of demand? We've seen a big uh, uh, injection of of, uh, of money into the systems of economies worldwide during the last twelve months in response to the coronavirus pandemic isn't isn't that a valid uh, role of the of the of the government or the or the central bank well that's a of course a very challenging question paul and i would not want to go out on a limb and claim that uh, a free banking system would n- necessarily have been able to handle a crisis like the recent one we've never seen anything quite like it uh, but it should be said though that what was needed in this last crisis more than anything to sustain demand was fiscal policy, not monetary policy. And that if you had enough of that, then uh, even a banking system without an active central bank could have handled it well enough. The government would have had to go into debt in order to finance relief payments, but it would not necessarily have required any vast expansion of the money stock. And indeed, I think a purely fiscal response to this recent crisis probably would have been much more effective than what we actually had with so much reliance on the Fed and other central banks. Uh, but I should say that uh, any monetary system is going to be only as effective in maintaining a stable demand as the monetary base that it depends on. So in the old days of the Scottish free banking system, and we're talking here mainly about before World War I uh, uh, and and even before the 1860s, you had a gold standard and uh, the system worked as well as the gold standard allowed it to. Today, if you had less regulation, you would still need a central bank to manage the supply of fiat money, which is now the modern monetary base. So it's not so easy to get rid of central banks entirely today unless we're willing to completely replace our existing fiat standards and try to have commodity standards again, which isn't something that I personally uh, uh, think is worth trying. Uh, but uh, but there is a tendency in a free banking system for the banks to automatically stabilize the relationship between uh, the monetary base and total spending. And I've written about that. It's somewhat complicated, but to make a long story short, 
there's a tendency for the money stock to grow in these systems, other things being equal, when people try to accumulate more money balances. Uh, in old-fashioned lingo, which is now quite out of style, uh, you would put it. Uh, I would put it as the money multiplier adjusts to changes in velocity. Uh, anyway, for what it's worth, there is that tendency, but it doesn't. It isn't a tendency that makes up for the need to have a well-controlled monetary base, whether it's gold that's behaving well or a central bank that's managing things well. You have to have something more than freedom to give your money supply, uh, uh, to have a money supply that behaves well. Uh, I, your, your comments on um, money supply take me back to an earlier um, stage in my career when I was working as an asset manager in the late 80s and early 1990s. And I can remember how much attention was paid in those days by some economists in the, in the UK and, and the US and continental Europe about uh, the need to target money supply. And then I remember that it, it kind of went, that that, that topic gradually disappeared from discussion because of the difficulties um, that the authorities found in targeting, you know, in targeting money supply, first of all, and then in making, you know, making the connection between money supply targeting and inflation. What, what did we learn from those uh, episodes? Well, I think the big lesson we learned was that uh, money is a malleable concept and that financial innovation can make for big changes in the kinds of things that serve us as as money, as uh, generally useful means of exchange. We have the same sort of thing going on today, I believe, uh, with uh, innovation, with stable coins and fintech and all that. In any event, back then, uh, a a lot of things started to become more money-like that hadn't been before. This upset the demand for destabilize the demand for more conventional kinds of money like checking accounts and all that and uh, central bankers and others found themselves having to scramble because they'd uh, been relying on stable relationships between the uh, uh, quantities of these conventional monetary assets and the price level and all that and all of it broke down but this is all goes to the point about financial innovation. It in itself, it's a great thing, and we want to have new kinds of money appear. We want to have a, a, a financial system that grows and innovates over time. That's dynamic, and uh, in the private market, once again, as was true historically, private institutions are the ones that are going to find these improvements. So if we're going to have central bankers managing things, we should have them do so in a way that doesn't preclude financial innovation, because in the long run, that's going to give us uh, uh, better monetary arrangements, more fruitful ones. Today, it's very much a question of fintech and how the regulatory authorities deal with it. Uh, in England, they've done a pretty good job. In the United States, they're doing a very bad job accommodating the kinds of change that uh, fintechs might uh, introduce. Yeah, where, where, where are the biggest um, frictions in in this um, you know period of change? Is it to do with? Are they to do with things like you know, deposit insurance on um, 
on you know on, on bank deposit accounts and which in, to, I mean to a large extent don't exist in in fintech. You may have some other concepts like safeguarding of client accounts, but they don't seem to uh, have the same legal status. Uh, or is it to do with um, you know some currencies perhaps having higher inflation rates than others? I'm just wondering how this whole now we've got this monetary innovation going on. You know, how can we categorize it or describe what's what's happening? There's two kinds of innovation going on side by side. Uh, one that gets the most attention because it's it's more unusual is the innovation that consists of uh, cryptocurrencies that are quite distinct from conventional currencies like Bitcoin. Bitcoin is its own unit. It is not uh, linked to any established currency. It's not just a repackaged version or close substitute. It's striking out on its own as a al- potentially alternative uh, 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 monetary standard. It isn't such yet, but it's trying to be. Its proponents hope it will be or think it will be. So part of the action is there, and that gets a lot of attention. But there's... Uh, at least as much, if not more, exciting innovation going on with various digital products, currency products that are based on existing monies like the U.S. dollar or the British pound, etc. And uh, these these innovative forms of money are innovative in part because they they're not supplied by banks; they're supplied out by firms outside of the normal banking system but using technologies that have a lot of advantages and could have a lot more advantages if these firms had access to the legacy payment systems that the banks use, which are controlled by the central banks. Uh, to the extent that, the, that access to the uh, central bank-operated payment system is denied to these new uh, fintech operators, they can't make their otherwise highly technically sophisticated payment services as useful as they might be because they're less universal than they might be. You have less access of their users to people elsewhere in the country. So that, I think, is a very important area where improvements need to be made uh, in that allow more competition and innovation to occur right and so those the, those uh, fintech firms um the, the the ones that are trying to provide new um mobile phone based mm-hmm. di- digital banking and savings uh products uh while at the same time being plugged into the uh traditional payment system and central bank systems those are the perhaps the areas of most interesting innovation where from your perspective i think so yes they those are the innovations that have the potential to bring about uh, a new era of of uh, monetary competition of the sort that uh, larry and kevin and i are nostalgic about when we look back at the old canadian and scottish systems and saw them uh, as as models of stability and innovativeness, this uh, these fintechs are really uh, introducing or or have the potential to introduce a very very dynamic payment system 
uh, that gets away from banks. Banks may still have a role, though it's likely to diminish in the future. But take something like mo- mobile payments. Uh, it is sad to report that in the United States, we have had hardly any development with mobile payments, yet at the same time, we complain about the large percentage of persons who are underbanked or completely lacking bank accounts. Yet we can look to countries in Africa and see how mobile payments have handled the problem there. And it's quite embarrassing, really, that we should be so backward. And, uh, uh, and this is entirely a result of limited access to the payment rails that are monopolized by the central bank. You see, if you want to offer dollar substitutes in the United States, then you ultimately need to settle with central bank Federal Reserve dollars. And that means you need access to their f- settlement facilities, to their books, as it were, to their record keeping. Yeah. And it's by denying fintechs that access, despite some attempts to make room for them in recent years, that we prevent the innovations that elsewhere have improved payments for many, many people. And we need to really do something about this. It's the the area that is crying out for reform more than any other in payments. Isn't there a danger, though, George, that, um, you know, faced with all this activity, the average consumer is just going to be overwhelmed with choice between different uh, banking savings apps, which will have different levels of security? I'm not talking about the um, digital security. I'm talking about the, you know, the safety of the, of the funds uh, behind the product or offering different interest rates, uh, maybe different levels of deposit insurance. How are people going to cope with this, uh, this uh, chaotic period of innovation? Part of me wants to say, Paul, that, you know, they'll cope with it the way they had to cope with going into the supermarket and faced with a a hundred types of yogurt, you know. Um, It's not the worst thing in the world. They can always stay where they they are, uh, and they can stay unbanked for that matter if they're unbanked. Nobody's proposing that anyone should have to deal with these new products. It's just a question of allowing those who want to uh, uh, experiment with them or are won over by them to to be able to take advantage of them. Now, as for as for confusion and etc., it is important that that uh, we insist that fintech firms properly advertise their products, make information available that's accurate, etc., etc. So it's not a question of of them being exempt from all regulation. However, it's also true that a lot of fintechs uh, are offering payment services that don't involve the same kinds of risk-taking that ordinary banks get involved with. For example, many of these fintech firms don't propose to make loans. They the deposit balances they would hold would either all be held as reserves at the central bank, 100% reserves, which is perfectly safe, or they would be held in very low-risk assets. So to the extent that that's true, we we don't need to uh, have 
quite as much of a regulatory apparatus on these enterprises as we have with riskier commercial banks. And we shouldn't require them to make to meet all the requirements we impose on banks, nor do we have to insist that they have deposit insurance. Uh, so it's a, it's a question of getting the right information out and properly regulating firms according to the true risks uh, of the activities that they engage in, instead of trying to only allow one type of financial firm to thrive, which is what we've been doing all this time. And we haven't even done a good job of it because the one kind of financial firm we we in, uh, support uh, is has itself still proven after all these years to be problematic. We still have big failures. We still have crises. So, <laughs> yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, George, about interest rates because uh, interest rates have, at least from the you know the G seven countries or the G ten countries, uh, have largely disappeared. You know, if they haven't even dipped into negative territory. I'm just wondering. I mean, that uh, having looked back a bit into financial history, this seems like an unprecedented. Uh, Situation because interest rates, you know, existed as far back as Babylonian times. What what what's, what impact has this had on on the overall functioning of the monetary system? It's had a very big impact on, uh, particularly on the more old fashioned parts of the monetary system, on the traditional banks that uh, that central banks are doing uh, their best to preserve and protect, because those institutions. Normally, or at least once upon a time, they profited mainly by the difference between the interest they paid on deposits and the interest they earned on loans. You can only do you can only do that to a very limited extent, if at all, if your loans are earning very low rates and and uh, you can't attract depositors with uh, competitive rates. So, what's happened is fees have become much more important. Uh, with ordinary banks instead of instead of them profiting from interest rate arbitrage and uh, and that that model that old-fashioned model of banking is is really being swept aside as a result in contrast the fintech firms we've been talking about they rely almost entirely on fees from the get-go they uh they don't depend on in the interest earnings they make on their portfolios very much, though they can earn some interest, but it's just not it's not an important part of their uh, business model. So I think banks uh, for anyway, even if the the central banks continue to deny fintechs access to payments, the regular banking system is going to uh, is going to face problems going into the future, and there'll have to be change and retrenchment as long as low interest rates persist. Uh, um, George, I wanted to ask you about uh, Bitcoin. I know you were too modest to mention that you were uh, involved in some of the um, mailing lists or discussion uh, fora that uh, preceded even the invention of uh, Bitcoin in 2009. Um, I think you were involved in some of the discussions going back to the uh, late uh, 90s on you know, new censorship resistant or decentralized forms of money. I just wanted, wanted to ask you what you make of the, you know, the incredible boom we've seen and you know, how sustainable you think this project is. 
Well, of course, back in the 90s, uh, there were a few of us who were interested in private currencies, and so there was a a mailing list, uh, uh, a network online where there was some discussion of all this, but uh, I certainly had no idea uh, how how it would uh, uh, lead to such a a massive... development as bitcoin and uh, related cryptocurrencies the 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 uh, and, and it's all been quite fascinating uh i'm of two minds about it on the one hand i think it's wonderful that we have this innovation uh i also think that it supplies a, a genuine uh need for particularly private uh, transactions uh, obviously not entirely uh, anonymous, but pseudonymous, that uh, are very useful for people in certain circumstances. Uh, <clears throat> what what I've been skeptical about, and I've said this many times and I've been criticized for it, is the the claim among very, that comes from many uh, Bitcoin enthusiasts that what we're seeing is the rise of Bitcoin as a true challenger to established official monies like the dollar, etc. I don't see that happening. I do see, like everyone, I see the the capitalization of Bitcoin going uh, crazy. It's very, very impressive. It obviously has caught on as as an investment vehicle and all power uh, to it for that. But that's not the same thing as catching on as a, a general medium of exchange for ordinary people. And I I don't see that happening anytime soon, and I doubt it will happen uh, in any major economy. Uh, and that's partly because of the volatility of, of uh, Bitcoin, but it isn't just because of that. The, the real truth is that uh, it's very hard for a new currency, a different standard, to take over a very well-entrenched uh, incumbent. And the dollar is extremely <laughs> the most well-entrenched money in the world uh, internationally, as well as in the U.S. itself. So uh, I don't think the dollar is going away anytime soon uh, or becoming a second banana anytime soon. Right, but what about uh, Bitcoin as a potential competitor to um, to gold, which is uh, the oh, longest-standing yes. um, monetary asset, uh, oh, and, and oh, yes. was the, you know the underlying for most of the free banking systems? Yes, ab- yes. As a well, as a substitute for gold, as a hedge, and all that, uh, I think we're already seeing that. I think it's very clear that Bitcoin is, in many respects, uh, playing the role that uh, was more exclusively played by by gold in uh, in the post gold standard era. Uh, that doesn't mean, though, that it'll become the basis for a free banking system uh, as gold was in the past, because gold in the past was was money, and I don't think Bitcoin uh, is going to get there. To, is going to gain that status. I don't think we'll see any. Uh, large development of a Bitcoin-based banking system, although uh, Hal Finney looked forward to free banking based on Bitcoin, and that was one of the things that that uh, uh, that he drew on m- my work in in speculating about. 
but I just don't think that's going to happen. Bitcoin has to become money first before we can have any buildup of other financial institutions that intermediate uh, with Bitcoin. And, uh, and that's just not happening. Now, I'm not denying, of course, that we have auxiliary financial institutions that are Bitcoin-based, like li- the Lightning Network, and that banks, various kinds of banks and fit- fintechs will and increasingly deal with Bitcoin and like products. I'm just saying that it's un- it's, I don't see anything leading to the outcome where I'm going to go down to my local grocery store and find that I can just as conveniently pay in Bitcoin as uh, with dollars. It's, uh, there are some merchants who take this stuff, but it's just not, yeah. it's not taking off the way people thought it would 10 years ago. So it's, it's, it's turned into a speculative asset rather than a, a, a medium of exchange from your perspective. Except in certain niche markets. Where it, where it can be very important. I mean, I would not want to deny the Venezuelans access to Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. And, and, and I would not want to suggest that that isn't an extremely valuable contribution that has nothing to do with just being a good investment asset for many people. And George, thank you for a very interesting discussion. Of uh, final question, what are you uh, focusing on for the remainder of 2021? You know, both in your work and in the, you know, areas of money that you survey. Well, I have just been working on this question of how we can integrate fintechs and their products into the payment system, and I'm doing a lot of reading on that. I also uh, am finishing my my a series of essays on the Great Depression, which I I think will continue to be uh, an object of interest going forward. Every time we have another crisis, it's always useful for people to to uh, remember, recall the lessons of the 1930s, and and uh, some of those lessons I think have have not been well understood. So I'm working on that as well. There's always a lot going on in our space, too much, I think. <laughs> so I'll be, I think I'll have a very busy 2021. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to chat to me and uh, for joining the New Money Review podcast. Thank you, Paul. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. You can find a write-up of this episode at our website, newmoneyreview.com, together with links to any important documents or sites mentioned during the discussion. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website.